Chloe McArdle, world record marathon swimmer, coach, ambassador, welcome to Discipline. Thanks very much for having me, Tony. Tell me about your childhood. What did you want to be when you grew up? When I was young, I didn't really have any fixed career or aspirations. I grew up in a middle class family and I think rather than focusing on something to be when I was older, my environment shaped me a lot. So I had three older siblings, much older, so same parents, but five years older, nine years older, 16 years older. Brothers, sisters? Two sisters and a brother. Nice, okay. So they, as older children, were playing much more interesting games, yep. which required more coordination, yep. more strategy, yep. more strength, more height, which as the youngest by far, I generally was... Uh, not up to their league. So I, I spent all my childhood basically trying to be stronger, faster, more cleverer, just to play games with them. Yep, I just, just hate being left out. Yeah. You know, I, I idolized my siblings. They they were my whole entire world when yeah. I was quite young. Yeah. And I just wanted to play with my siblings. But that was it drove me to really push myself because they they didn't give me any leeway. They yeah. wouldn't give me handicaps or anything. Like, yeah. if you want to play with us, well, then fine. But, you, you know, you play as we play. I'm like, okay. When did you first get in a swimming pool? <laughs> okay. Or a body of water? Yeah. Well, I loved, like, splashing around in the beach as a kid. My, one of my sets of grandparents had a beach house. And I was always happy just playing in the water. And they just never, my parents never really kind of thought, oh, make sure we put the fourth child into swim lessons. So it was just a kind of forgotten about thing or just maybe it was accepted that I was happy enough in the water, I'd be fine. So I was never put in swim lessons up until the point when I was in grade six, last year of primary school, all the kids get sent to the local pool for lessons and I'm looking around going, oh my God, I don't know how to swim across the mini pool, which was 12 metres, let alone do laps of the 25 metre pool, which everyone else in my year level was doing. So me and three other kids at that age, we were put in the cannot swim group with our private teacher in the baby pool. And I was so embarrassed. So it was that sheer embarrassment that led me to go home that very night and say to my mum, can you please put me in proper swim lessons? Because school lessons, and I've been a swim teacher, they're, they're nowhere near the quality of outside school lessons. Yeah. And she was great. She did immediately and put me in lessons. And I just took to it like a duck to water. Yeah. And I sped through learn to swim, got straight into competitive swimming within 12 months. And I just found that thing that I could compete at, get sense of identity and sense of achievement and confidence. And, and you were, what, 11 years old, 12 years old? So I was 11 when I started learn to swim and then 12 when I started competing uh, outside school and then by then I'd moved to high school as well as school. So how do you go from the horror of being behind everybody else and not being able to swim in such a short period to loving it and excelling in it? Was there a moment where you just felt it at ease or was it the competitive nature of having to catch up that just stayed with you? My drive to want to swim was extremely high. So every time I went to a swim lesson, which was only once a week for an hour during the Learn to Swim program, I would listen obsessively to whatever the teacher was saying. I would put it into practice. I wouldn't play around like the other kids were there, you know, for a bit of fun. Um, as well as learning some things. And the effort I put in was uh, disproportionate, really, for yeah. someone that age. Yeah. I, I was driven originally by shame, but then I ended up just loving that feel for the water. 
So I was really driven to just learn how to swim. Yeah. I wasn't even thinking about the Olympics. I just wanted it to know how to swim a few laps of freestyle and backstroke and then eventually the other stroke. So I, I never felt that I had a particular affinity for the water or talent. I just had a drive that no one else seemed to have that I could see. And with that drive, like, you know, some people would have, in your position, jumped in the water and just done the bare minimum to get that skill to be able to swim that 25 metres. Again, what, what sort of lit the fire for that drive? Do you, do, was there a moment where you said, I just, I want to be excellent at swimming? Or was there a natural ability? Or was there someone who came along and said, Chloe, you're really good at this, uh, you should go a bit harder? I had some very good swim coaches early on in my swimming career. So my first swim teacher said something quite offhand, probably didn't even mean it, but he was like, oh, you know, you could be the next Hayley Lewis. All right, okay. And I was like, oh, I could be good at this, potentially. Yeah. So that piqued my interest. I didn't take it that seriously, but I think it planted a seed. Yeah, right. And when I got into my first squad level after 12 months and finishing all the learn to swim levels, that coach was very supportive and halfway through that year of joining squad, I got like an encouragement award, which is basically, you're not that good, but hey, you've got some potential, <laughs> which for me was like amazing. I never won a medal or a ribbon for anything outside basic running at school. So uh, I had a, a really good female swim coach. And interestingly, there are very few swim coaches that are female in Australia yeah, at, the, at the junior, median and, and elite level. So I didn't know at the time, but I was so lucky to have a great female coach. When you start excelling at something, obviously you've got some physical talent, you've got talent, but then when does the grey matter kick in? When does it become matter and when does it become mind or is, is it have to be working in concert? This is something that I've dwelled on so much in the last decade or so and as you probably know when I swim the English Channel I've got a lot of hours to kill. So yeah I'm still a bit torn so I know there are some personal development gurus at Spruik you can do anything be anything blah 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 I think that's a lot of shit. I think everyone has the potential to be the best in the world at one thing, but they may not know what that is yeah. at any one given time. I don't think we all have the potential to be anything we want. That's a bit too pie in the sky for me. So, there, I mean, there was a point where I would have loved to go into the Olympics, so I was training really intentionally between the ages of 14 and 16. Yes. So I was training with future Olympians. Um, you may not have heard of these people, but Matt Welsh, who yeah. medaled at the Olympics, and Matt Target, who um, made the finals for Butterfly at the Olympics, the next Olympics, I can't remember the exact years. Um, so I was in that squad. So I was doing the same sessions as them, the same number, the same intensity. And, you know, their careers skyrocket, which yeah. is great, which is wonderful. But I don't, I don't think it's because of my lack of persistence or a lack of, I guess, you know, motivation or, or anything like all resources. I think there is definitely talent sometimes at play. So I wasn't close to making the Olympics and that's kind of what got me off the path of swimming for a few years, which then I guess takes me to the next stage of my career. And what is that next stage? So if you love something and you think you're going to uh, excel at it, how do you go from like competitive swimming to working out that you're actually good at? long distance swimming if you're taken out of that competitive matrix mm. 
It's really interesting you talk about the competitive matrix. So I, as a teenager, really loved being in the competitive swim environment for a few reasons, but one of them was that I could keep pushing myself every session, unless it was a recovery session. So I could choose to, in main sets, race the other swimmers, or I could just choose to try and be better than I was in previous weeks or previous years or et cetera, et cetera. So the pursuit of excellence and motivation and drive and and a lot of those things that sports psychologists work with athletes for you have traits that are really important for entrepreneurialism and success through business, through traditional means. All those things I just love. Like I gravitated to that. And so when I left that competitive swimming environment, I was like lost. Like I lost a part of my identity because at that age, being a teenager, my favorite hobby was my identity. I was a kid at school who was good at swimming. Yes. And you know, I had a lot of pride in that. And then it felt like my identity slipped away yep. when I let go of that. And a bit of my purpose and a bit of my drive. And and I love that environment of pushing myself. And I didn't really want to go to school and try and ducks at school. Like that wasn't where my drive was. And when I did go to university, I um, enrolled in a Bachelor of Arts at Monash University in Victoria. I was like, well, yeah, the degree's okay. And yeah, the drinking culture's okay. It's not that satisfying though. I really want to do something amazing with my life. I want to be the best in the world at something. Yeah. And at that young age, you know, it was limited experience, life experience, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, I think it's going to be sport. So then I went on this like discovery tour of multiple sports and the trials and tribulations of trying to reach the elite level at something in kind of a non-traditional way. Yeah. Does it strike you as unusual? Because I spend a lot of my time with my kids telling them, it's highly unusual that you'll be the best in the world at anything. Like you might be the best in the world at something, but it's, you know, there's a lot of people who are better than you at everything. And maybe that's the wrong attitude to take. But I also think if you say you're going to be the best at something and you fall short, then maybe there's a lot of disappointment that comes with that as well. What's the mindset that made you actually think that one, you could be the best at something, and two, that you actually were committed enough to want to be the best and then drive the physical or mental struggle to be the best. Mm. So to answer the first part of your question, I think it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. So to have absolute belief in yourself that you as an athlete or you as a business owner can succeed in your field do you have that belief because you have a track record of success, which therefore gives you the you know background to say, yeah, I can definitely achieve the next thing? Or do you believe you can do it without the evidence and therefore act in a way that then gets you the outcome you want, which is that next level? So it is a very chicken and egg thing. I think that being a young kid and pushing really hard and knowing that I could play at the same level as my siblings who were much older and stronger and more capable gave me the confidence to believe if I really wanted to be good at swimming, I could. Yeah. And then very fast developing my swimming abilities, not to the Olympic level, but from a non-swimmer to doing very well at state level within 12 months and then nationals within 12 months of that. It just, I had spent time in my childhood, I guess, building confidence in some areas. Yeah. But I'd failed miserably in other areas. Like I would have loved to have been a great gymnast or a great tennis player. So I, mean, I did have things that I was just very average at and not this kind of like super talented all-rounder. I just found one thing that I was very good at. When you talk about um, with your children, you tell them that, well, 
or you or at least you say that you're concerned that if they try and be the best in the world at something statistically, it's probably unlikely that they will if you're talking like pure mathematics. But what I would say to that is that even though I never went to the Olympics for swimming and it was a huge disappointment when I stepped out of that world and I lost my identity and that drive, what happened was those years as a teenager, it was like a breeding ground. It was like, well, this is what excellence looks like. And right. these are the steps that yeah, I would okay. need to take because I'm watching people on the Olympic path. Matt Welsh went to Olympics when I was in his squad. And I was like, well, it is it is possible. And like I was in this like little hot housing environment and I could see what motivation and persistence plus really good coaching can lead to. And you know, that gave me the belief that I could be the best at something, just something else. So let me go back to that original question then motivation belief now is it mind over matter or is it still the same equation like you know matt welsh got to the olympic games obviously there's some talent there's some physical attributes but how much is the mind and how much is the natural gift at that point in time and obviously you add have to add good coaches and mm. facilities and whatnot into the mix but at some point isn't it all played above the shoulders look i think when it gets to the point of olympic semi-finals and finals it's a big mental game at that level. Yeah, yeah. But you've got to get through layers of rounds of cutoff times and point collection to even get to the point where you're invited or you qualify to get to those Olympic finals. So I, I personally believe it is more physical. Uh, I don't play much in that Olympic world at the yeah. moment. I'm just tapping back to my own personal yeah, experience yeah, yeah. when I was younger. In relation to the English Channel, though, this comes up a lot and some of the really good marathon swimmers, they'll say that swimming the English Channel is like 70 to 90% mental and the rest is physical. Whereas for me, I'm like, yeah, it's like 99% physical and 1% mental. Like, I know I'm going to swim the channel, so I don't need to think about am I going to make it or not? Am I good enough? Am I not good enough? Do I have the motivation to finish today? Of course I do. I'm just like, I'm swimming in this channel like that's what I'm here for so I think that my belief in the goal and my belief in what my future will hold is so strong yes. it overrides doubt imposter syndrome imposter syndrome is so common in women my age like successful women not not just you know people cruising through their careers it's just ridiculous so much so that I believe that my success is inevitable uh, all my job is to do is to put the pieces together like a jigsaw, but kind of making it into like a staircase to the success. So I know I can achieve this, but do I know the process yet to achieve that? So the puzzle is putting the process together. The puzzle is not can I achieve the English Channel Swim or not. Right, that's, that's a fascinating, almost really methodical way to achieve success, putting those puzzle pieces together and ident uh, identifying them as part of the process as well, I assume. Yeah, and I failed at the English Channel yeah. multiple times. Yeah. It's not on my bio, but <laughs> the first time I tried to become the first Australian to swim a triple crossing of the English Channel, failed. That was 2011. Yeah. The next year, 2012, failed again. And even though I failed it twice, I, was, I still believed I could do it. Yeah. And then 2015, so this is now, in total, this is five years I've been trying to achieve this. I did it. And I did believe I could do it all along. And just because I'd failed along the way, it didn't prove in my brain that 
I was unable to achieve it. It just proved that I was unable to achieve it with all the inputs that I had on that particular day. So my, something to do with you know my physical preparation or the support around me in England or back home uh, or my training or the people involved on in a particular day. Something in there wasn't working. So I really depersonalized it. I'm like, okay, well, I, I didn't make a spreadsheet, but you can imagine someone just, okay, well, you know, here's the columns, here's the rows, here's yes. the inputs. All I need to do is tinker with the inputs because I believe the outcome is set, which is me being successful, but because I'm not achieving that, I need just, just to tweak some inputs and figure out where the weakness is, you know, where's, where's the weak link here in the chain that's supposed to be getting me to my result, which I think a lot of people say, mate, if they failed English Channel, they had this whole like, and it's understandable, like they just feel overwhelmed and they lack confidence and then they have this like monkey on the shoulder, do I ever go back to achieve it, yep. to test myself again because I might fail again, whereas like I don't, I don't have those issues. And those inputs that you're assessing what worked or what didn't work more particularly, was there some of them you knew intuitively that they had to be changed or fixed or addressed and others that you had to work at to understand that these needed to be changed or fixed or addressed? Mm, so interesting because English Channel Swimming essentially is an amateur sport. So there's no prize money. Uh, it's not part of the Olympics. And therefore, I don't have a team of scientists around me. I can't go to my physiologist and go, oh, my God, I got hypothermia. What are we going to do about this? And, and I don't have that. Like I don't have the... New South Wales Institute support because I, I live in New South Wales at the moment, or the Australian Institute support team around me, and I would love that. I just can't tap into that, so I had to go on this kind of like self-analysis journey and figure out, you know, what I think is going wrong, and then ask people around me, and only my inner circle, not people in the outer circle, because I mean I've been trolled before by people saying like I can't achieve things, and I shouldn't set high expectations. So only my inner circle, I would like, you know, speak to them, get their opinion, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, there was, you know, it was one time where I just, I fired the boat captain, basically. I mean, I just didn't book with them for the next attempt. And that was a really good move. So I was like, okay, well, that's the next did you, And, and again, did you know that you needed to do that? Or was that something that you figure out as part of this self-analysis process? Unfortunately, I figured it out in the middle of the English Channel when the boat lost me. It's pitch black at night, 2 a.m. in the night. Oh. I, this is my first attempt at a double crossing of the English Channel, which is my first year of English Channel swimming. So I'm left out in the middle of the English Channel. Remember, there's two busy shipping lanes, busy shipping lanes in the world, the busiest ferry route between the frats in the world, and I'm out there in the dark, pitch black, going, please don't leave me behind. Where's my boat? And the boat's just heading off in some random direction. So I lost trust in the pilot then. And I'm like, there's no way I'm rebooking with this pilot. Pilot's what they call boat captains in the channel. Because if I can't trust my captain, yeah. then how can I have hope of getting across and finishing this crossing? Yes. So that was on the way back to finishing a double. So the double was unsuccessful, but I did get the single crossing in and that was ticked off in my first year of Chelsea. And did you realise then, or had you realised earlier that then obviously the bulk of what happens is you, but there is a team that has to support you that has to be right as well. Was that intuitive to you from the outset or was that something that came to pass as you went through the journey? I think I, I knew leading into English Channel Swimming that I needed to have very good preparation plus a very good crew. After the first year, because I gained more experience and I'd lived through being lost in the channel, I... I 
gained quickly an understanding of the dynamics of English Channel swimming. Right, yeah. So that, that was definitely a learning experience. And then because I love pushing the boundaries of my personal limits and the sport, I then was jumping to wanting to complete that double and then wanting to complete the triple, blah, blah, blah. So I kept extending the bar. And then the further I extended the bar, the more it became about my physical preparation. So not my mental preparation because I always believed I could do it and I was never like wanting to get out of the water. But physiologically, the human body is not designed to swim at all. Like if you look at creatures like fish and dolphins or sharks, they're designed, yeah, they're hydrodynamic. They don't use much energy to get around. They, they live in water. Humans are not designed to swim. And specifically, we're not designed to swim in cold water. So what I was, the, the trouble I was getting with, the further I was trying to extend these crossings as making the multiple non-stop crossings, is that my body was getting colder and colder. My core temperature was dropping to the point where I was hospitalised in ICU at my first attempt at the triple crossing in 2011 and 60 minutes were there covering it all. And the doctor said to my team when I was in hospital that if you'd left her in 30 minutes longer, she would have been dead. Right. So by the time I sorted out how to get my, a good crew working for me, which is after the first year, it then became about well, physiologically, how far can I push my body? And this took years and years and years. And a lot of it was just trial and error because it's an amateur sport. I can't go to experts. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting world. Let's go back a step before you do your first crossing. Where's the moment where Chloe McArdle goes, I'm going to swim the English Channel? So in my mind, from what I've pieced together, you've mm. left the swimming sort of uh, competitive side. Uh, when did you get back into swimming, realise you were good at long distance or marathon swimming, and then when did you the light bulb go on or the, the moment that you thought you'd challenge yourself to swim the English Channel? Where and why? Yeah, very good. There's a little gap. So I talked about going to university, wanting to be the best in the world at something, figuring out sport was probably what I could make that in. So I tried triathlon for two and a half years. I was hoping to break the elite level. Uh, I did a bit of running with school. I had a swimming background. But I, was, I wasn't really able to piece it together to get, do well at the elite level at all, like not even barely scraping through. So after two and a half years, I was like, I don't think I'm going to make it at elite triathlon. And so I signed up for a running marathon and a swimming marathon within a couple months of each other. And I trained for both. The running marathon went really well. I did three hours 37, so that was the Melbourne Marathon when it used to finish in St Kilda back in 2006. And then early 2007, I swam a marathon, which was 11 kilometres from... Pier de Pub? <laughs> much further, that's like <laughs> one kilometre. From Frankston to Mornington, yeah, on the okay. Mornington Peninsula. Yeah, okay. So anyone from Victoria listening will know these places. If you're not from Victoria, just think somewhere where there's a beach and water in Australia. Uh, and the swimming marathon went really well. I was the first woman, so I won the women's race. There's only one man ahead of me. And more than just it felt good and I knew I was physically doing very well, like competitively, I just had this amazing affinity with the water. Like I had this flow. I had this sense that, this was my world. This was what I was supposed to be doing. So yeah. it was it was like I'd found some sort of symmetry or... Yeah, nice. But you didn't go into that uh, marathon thinking you were going to win or you did think you were going to win? Or you it was just an experiment. You had no idea. I wanted to be in 
the like at a very elite level, all best in the world at a sport. I'd, I'd written off triathlon by yep. this point and I was just saying, is it, could I possibly be a marathon runner or a marathon swimmer? And I was weighing up those two options. So you've got the affinity now, start to piece this together. What's the leap from Frankston to the body of water between England and France? Well, the English Channel is renowned for being the mecca of open water swimming. Yeah because it's so challenging and the best in the world have gone there since 18, well, the late 1800s and Captain Matthew Webb swam it for the first time in 1875. So I knew if I wanted to be the best in the world, I need to go where the best in the world go and that is the English Channel. Yep. And it's a very difficult patch of water to swim once. You've got huge waves up to two metres. You're crossing those shipping lines I talked about, cargo ships, tankers, yep. ocean liners. Yep. <laughs> Even like Russian, what do you call the Russian naval fleets just cruising through there sometimes. Uh, and then the ferries going in another direction. And the cold water, which induces hypothermia. Uh, you have the jellyfish. Well, it, it varies slightly over the season. The season is uh, late June to early October. The average is about 16 Celsius. But I've swum it, yeah, I've swum in 12.9 Celsius. And it's just. That's cold. It's just horrifically cold. <laughs> Perfectly cold. So I was like, yep, I'll go there. And then I'm like, I'm going to go do a double crossing because I knew people that had done singles in Australia and I looked at their ability and they were not, they did not have a competitive swimming background. And I was, I like was swimming 1.5 times as fast as them in training sessions. So I was like, yeah, I think I can do a double crossing. And the fact that it's not professional and you need the support team, you need to hire the boat captain and support crew you go, okay, I want to cross the English Channel. That's one thing. How do you pull the, the sponsorship or the finances or, the, or the, the money together to make something like that? You've got to fly over there, you know. How, do you, how does that come about? Yeah, so financing my marathon swimming career is nearly as difficult as swimming yeah. the English Channel 37 yeah. times. Uh, I run a business, yeah. which is my main source of revenue, yeah. and that is coaching people to swim the English Channel. So yeah. I've coached 150 people now since 2014 to swim the English Channel. So there's that. I'm an ambassador for an amazing Australian business based in Sydney called Local Chemicals. I don't know. I just... But you, the first time around, you didn't have that source of revenue from these? First time around, I had a credit card <laughs> and a lovely man, a swimmer in um, Brighton, wrote me a check for $5,000, yeah. which was fabulous. Yeah. But the double crossing in the trip cost me like 20000 So, And I also got $1,500 from someone else. So there were people in the swimming community back then who were like, wow, these girls were trying to do something amazing. Because at that point, only one Australian had ever swum a double crossing of the English Channel. Yeah. So to go out there and double crossing was phenomenal. Uh, so it was Susie Moroni, which a lot of your listeners will remember. Yeah, yeah, she absolutely. Did, she was a great marathon swimmer. And I was like, yeah, I want to go over and do this. I was quite young when I decided, I was like 22, when I decided I want to do all this. And, and I got some help and I, um, yeah, got a, great, got a credit card. So pumped a bit of your own money in to make it happen. My, my future earnings. <laughs> so you've said it's difficult and it looks difficult, but physically and mentally punishing, how, how do you prepare for a double or triple crossing? So there's volume of swimming that you need to do in a swimming pool, uh, high quality work, which is what we call in intensity training. I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with that. So that is going at high intensity and having short rests. Yeah. So like it might be 
eight repeats of 200 meters and you go at say 80% and then you get say 10 seconds so, rest. Is it like a Swedish technique or something like that? I think Forbes Carlisle invented it. Right, okay. Actually, a lot of sports science around swimming yeah. and a great Australian swim coach. So quality works done in the pool and then open water swimming is really important because your shoulders and your body have to get used to being thrown around in chop, really serious chop. And even more important than that, your body has to physiologically adapt to performing in really cold water. Yeah. So when the entire English Channel is leaching heat from your organs and your body is going into hypothermia, you've got to train your body to keep swimming through that and train your mind to keep swimming through that too. So when a lot of people say the English Channel is mostly a mental thing, it's because their body is shutting down. It's going into survival mode because it's trying not to die. And then in your mind, you have to tell your body, no, keep swimming in this cold water that's killing you because you really do want to get to fracks. I mean, it sounds like an extraordinarily, uh, I mean, almost like an impossible feat in, in many respects. If your body's natural instinct is telling your mind to stop, mm. get warm, you know, what's the fuel to the flame that stops your mind from going, I need to get out and I want to keep going? So I use a few techniques if, if I'm struggling. Because swimming, the English Channel, is kind of like riding a roller coaster. You have these amazing moments like when the sun rises. Yeah. And then you have these horrible moments when you know that you've got quite that hypothermia that you still want to push through. Or you're in a lot of pain because, for example, it takes me 34,000 arm strokes to get between England and France. It's one crossing. And if I'm struggling those moments, the best tactic I have is to visualise the finish so I literally go in my head and I transport myself into my successful future and I'm there and I imagine the last 10 strokes swimming into France so I can feel my arm strokes in my imagination and I'm looking down and then there's a water line and then I swim up to shore and I'm walking out of shore. So it's, it's a very visual thing. I'm listening to what I hear around me, which is the water lapping. I've got the smell and the taste of the sea and visually looking at whatever's around on the French land at the moment and then looking back at the boat because the escort boat uh, escorts the swimmer. Uh, the swimmer doesn't touch the boat, but the boat's there for, for guiding and feeding purposes. And I look back at the boat and then I allow myself the, the luxury of having that emotional experience where you're like, yes, I've achieved this, which for me is one part relief, like thank freaking God that's done and I'm not dead, so like hypothermia didn't win this time. And also on the other part is, you know, exhalation that finally I've achieved this, which I get that for double crossings or triple crossings. I don't get it for single crossings. Yeah. If there's no like, wow, exhilaration, because, you know, most of my crossings now are like single crossings and I can just like, I can bang them out. Last season I did six single crossings, four of them within 16 days. Ah, it's a walk in the park. So not so much exhilaration for singles, but but definitely relief because the sooner I get to the other side, the sooner I can go home and watch Netflix and (laughs) have some hot food. (laughs) I was going to ask about what the first thing you eat is when you get to the other side or is it rehydrate and uh, get your fluids in because I imagine despite the fact you're cold and you're, in water, you sweat a lot and take a lot of fluids out of your body? Mm. So I am feeding the whole way across the channel from that boat. So every 30 minutes, they give me liquid with carbohydrates, which is warmed up to help try and prevent the hypothermia setting in or getting worse. So I'm not not usually so much dehydrated at the end. 
but because I rely so much on liquids during that swim, I am I'm usually a bit hungry. So when I get back on the boat, because I need to take the boat to get back to England, then I'm snacking on something not usually that healthy, like biscuits or rolls or something. Yes. Chocolate rolls. Yeah. Like I just, I take the moment to just indulge. I mean, I know it's not great. I should be having protein for recovery, yes. you know, for muscle repair and yeah. building, all that stuff. That's what I should be having. But usually I just have something naughty. Well, as I said, as there's no rule book for this, I think you can have what you like if you've swum the English Yeah, channel. unfortunately I know I can get away with that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about the world record swim, you know, 41 hours, 120 kilometres. What I really want to know is you say you have moments which are great and moments which aren't so great. The rest of the time where it's just, you know, on a median, what are you thinking about? You know, the rest of the time I'm like bored out of my brain. So what are you thinking about? <laughs> How do you keep yourself energised? And You know, you've got a lot of time by yourself. Mm. What, do you, what, what goes through your mind in those things? I mean, yeah, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of time. And I'm not a particularly patient person. We were having a discussion before this started about how annoying it is to try and find a park in Surrey Hills. Like, I'm not by nature patient. I don't think ambitious people generally are because you're not yeah. getting a lot done. If you're a patient person, yeah. you can let people just stuff you around and take weeks to get back if you ask them to do things. So I just have to keep my mind busy. Yeah. Well, sometimes keeping my mind busy and then sometimes it's like active meditation. So the first one, say keeping my mind busy, that would be things like thinking about my stroke technique because when you actively think about your technique, then you're, you're keeping it or maintaining maximal efficiency. And efficiency is really important in marathon swimming because water is super dense. Yeah. I can't remember the exact statistic, but something like 200 times more dense than air. So if you don't have a really good technique like swimming, you're going to tire out. Wasting is, energy. So why people come to me, they're like, how do you swim 120 kilometers? I can't even swim 25 meters yeah. to the end of the pool. Yeah. It's because... They just don't have the technique to efficiently move through the water. It's not because their body's not designed to be able to swim 500 metres if they really want it. It's a mainly a technique thing. So uh, focusing on the process, which is something I can control. I think a little bit earlier we were talking about process to achieving a goal. So I do a lot of process-driven activities and it helps me be present, be in that moment, and it also distracts me from sometimes the overwhelmingness of a big goal. Like when I wanted to swim three laps of the English Channel, if I just kept thinking about, oh, my God, that's 102 kilometres, I've got this whole body of, of water three times back and forth, and the last two times I failed and one of them I was nearly dead. So if I focused on those really large goals, uh, the negative experiences I've had in the past, the failures, that would put me in a really, a really low um, mental state, which would affect my pace. Like my pace would actually slow down and has slowed down if I'm in a bad headspace. So the active meditation is good for helping me bring me back to the present and it also it's good for increasing efficiency, which is good for my overall speed and maintaining energy reserves as much as possible. And the other thing is visualising a successful finish, which we've talked about before. That helps with monotony as well. And the other thing is, if I'm quite bored out there, I try and break things down into small goals so that I don't have to think about the big goal. I'm like, all I need to do is make it to the next feed. So right now that's my only job. Yeah. Because as long as I keep staying in the water and making it to the next feed, there are 30-minute intervals. Yeah. Then Little milestones. Yeah, but that's all I need to do, yeah. do. Because essentially the biggest swim I do is still feed to feed. You just string them along. 
And then if I'm struggling, even considering how do I keep going to the next fee, which I have when I've been severely hypothermic, I literally break it down to stroke by stroke. Yeah, wow. So sometimes I'm so hypothermic and these intrusive thoughts about how cold I am and how much I want to get out is overwhelming my brain that if I count my strokes, my brain is so busy counting because I'm like one, two, all the way up like in the thousands, stroke by stroke, then the other thoughts actually don't get a chance to land. Like they may want to come in, but my brain doesn't have the capacity to fit them in because I'm doing this constant stroke count. And that's the main thing that got me through the triple crossing, the one that was eventually was successful. In the night, in like 2 a.m. in the morning, I was definitely severely hypothermic. And I counted continuously up to 10,800 strokes, which is, I mean, it's only about two and a half hours of swimming. But I, I just couldn't think about being cold at that point because I just, I had no bandwidth to let those thoughts get in. I mean, it, it occurs to me when you're talking like that that we get actually a lot of this drummed into us from a very young age when someone says to you, well, you just got to put one foot in front of the other. I mean, you break it down to that kind of level, it seems to actually make sense. You can't get to the end or the next milestone unless you put one stroke, then another. How do you recover from something like this? What's triple crossing? How long does it take you mentally or physically to recover or is there such elation at the end that it's an instant sort of recovery or is there some unpacking that goes along both mentally and physically with, with this uh, effort? It depends what the result is. I mean, if it's a failed triple crossing, then mental unpacking is very different than a successful triple crossing. As far as the physical recovery, it's, it's very difficult because doing any endurance event, including swimming, there's so much pressure on your joints. And swimming is not weight-bearing, which is a benefit. So you're only dragging one-sixth of your body weight through the water. But the number of rotations Highly that I'm doing yeah. is, is extraordinary. So I said 34,000 strokes for one crossing, and that's about 102,000 strokes I did when I did the triple crossing. Amazing. And then divide that in half, so you probably get about, what, 50. 51,000 neck rotations and like I kick at twice the rate I arm stroke at so that's 204,000 kicks when I did that triple crossing of the English Channel so the like the amount of soft tissue pain so tendon ligament muscular pain I was in was phenomenal so I had to use those mind hacks that I was talking about before also to get me through those patches that were really bad as well so in terms of recovery I've it, like it's very different. A single crossing is very different than double and triple. Single, I, I can back up. I talked before about four and 16 days or, or even doing a triple crossing is singles backed up literally. But when, in those longer swims, recovery is so difficult. Well, one day I was in, sorry, after one major swim, I was in a wheelchair for five days. I had severe burns. From the, so from the Bahamas World Record swim, I had severe burns. I was in a wheelchair for five days. I was bandaged up because of the burns were welts and, you know, there's a chance of infection, which looked super odd, except the fact that it happened to be Halloween in America when I got back to America at that time. So I was ready to go for Halloween that year and I looked apart totally. I was a mess, proper, but it looked great. Proper silver lining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it worth it being the best in the world at something, all the pain, all the training, all the anguish? And the second part of that question is, when you first got that world record, what's that? Is that relief? Is that elation? Is that 
you know, a finger in the air, I'm number one, what, what, all of those things, what is it? I couldn't put a finger in the air because I collapsed. It's <laughs> taken the hospital. I could hardly speak. I should have sent you the clip, you loved it. I was like, oh, thank you so much. So you couldn't hear my voice. Well, I've been poisoned by box jellyfish, burned by the sun. But it also, there was also some physiological dynamics going on in my body that it was breaking down. So I, I couldn't really talk coherently. I was just happy for it to be finished. Yeah. Because it went on for quite a while. And I had to endure quite a lot to get to the other side. And then for years I'd been wanting to achieve a massive swim because at this point I had not done a triple cross New English Channel. I just had two failures. It was the most momentous moment in my life but there was no exhilaration it was just like thank freaking god it was relief thank freaking god yeah. yeah relief now i can collapse so what's so interesting is i was actually swimming fairly strongly towards the end of that swim so at hour 42 i was swimming strongly but when my brain and i, I stood up because i have to walk by myself on my own steam for it to be official no one can help me out of the water so i was able to swim into the finish stand up kind of hobbly walk past the waterline and I was trying to clarify am I done because I was I'd been hallucinating like I pretty much didn't really understand totally what was going on so I wanted verbal confirmation that it was okay to stop that I'd made it and once they said yep you've made it I collapsed like that yet moments before I was swimming and standing yeah so when my body when my mind sorry realized it was okay you can stop now it didn't just stop swimming, it actually shut down, yeah. which is so interesting. Yeah, it's amazing what you can achieve, you know, to get to a finish line, how you can push yourself to that finish line, and then once you've crossed it, there's nothing left. You've you've spent everything in your body. Well, that's what I, I guess I'm trying to say is I had more left in me. Like if they said, actually, no, the finish line's too close that way, there. I would have been yeah, able to yeah, do yeah. it. But once my brain had permission to stop and it knew that it reached its goal, it was then allowed to collapse. Like I, my brain kind of gave my subconscious, so my conscious gave my subconscious permission to now, it's okay. Like there's no more pressure. There's no more expectation. I mean, I had good people around there pushing me. There's my main internal expectation. It's okay now. Like you're done. No one's going to ask anything right now of you. And then boom, I collapse. So physically... I could have gone further, but my brain knew that I was not going to ask it to do anything, and then it collapsed. And when's the when's the big smile come? When's the big grin come where you've got the world record and you're able to actually go, wow, I'm the best in the world at something? I don't think I really smiled until last year. <laughs> <laughs> it took a couple of years, did it? So that world record thing was 2014. There was nothing fun about it. I went straight to hospital, had an emergency, and there were criminals being led around in handcuffs and escorts. It was like the public hospital in Bahamas is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I guess I did celebrate after triple crossing the next year. So it was really weird because I'm not really I'm not recognized by Swimming Australia at all. Zero. Like I can't I can't I'm not eligible to win an award. I'm not eligible for any funding from them. Masters swimming don't really get what I do because it's not an official competitive event for them either. There's no official celebration as such. I might just have dinner with friends what was my crew. husband yeah. or something small with my crew and then it's like, well, back to work pretty much straight away. 
So there hasn't been much like official ceremonial big, big deal. What's next? So this year, um, government permitting, I'll hopefully get an exemption again to leave the country and I'm aiming to swim the English Channel seven times, just single crossings, nothing hopefully right. too taxing. Yeah. And that should surpass the overall world record for greatest crossings of the English Channel, which right now is sitting at 43 and English woman Alison Streeter holds that record. Yeah. Uh, I beat the men's world record last year because that sits at 34. So I swam at 30 for the 37th time last year. And I'm aiming to swim it seven more times this year, which should get me to 44, all going well. I hope you get that exemption. Yes, thank you. You're trying to leave a legacy? You got that in your mind that you, you might be able to leave this world record on the shelf for a long time to come and attach your name to it or it just doesn't factor into thinking? Well, I'm very competitive by nature, so... If anyone comes near my work, you get back out there. And doesn't matter how old I am, I'm going back. <laughs> but more, I'm not. I'm actually not that concerned about my swimming legacy. But I do a lot of advocacy now against domestic violence, and that's a legacy that's super important to me. Yep. So I'm not sure when this is airing, but I'll be on SBS Inside on May 11th. They're doing a topic on whether crim- coercive control should be criminalised in Australia. It's a big deep dive there with some very influential people in that space. So that's, that's what I'm working on now. I'm using my swimming as a platform for what I really believe in. And I love inspiring people through my swimming. That's great. But to have the opportunity to affect real social change on a national, international level, it's been really good. Because my advocacy work, which I started last year in England, got a lot of English press. So the English press were really interested in it as well. Uh, I was concerned particularly because last year there were heavy lockdowns around the world and mm. the rates of domestic violence yes. were going up. So yep. that's what kind of prompted me to really get, get into that space. So that's that's where I hope I will leave a legacy. I expect you'll do it in that front and probably in the swimming front as well. Um, I always finish off on a quick fire round. So who's been a professional inspiration to you? Uh, I have a, a mentor who finished at my school many years before me, Gabrielle Trainer. She's a very accomplished businesswoman and, yeah, she's been a great mentor. Kindest thing anyone's ever said to you? Uh, that I'm a kind person. If you got hit by a bus today and killed, what is the one thing you would say, geez, I wish I'd done that? That I'd be dead. <laughs> well, as the bus is bearing down on you and you're thinking, oh, I didn't do... Oh, do you mean like a regret I might have? Yeah. Oh. Not leaving my ex-husband earlier. <laughs> if you could go anywhere in the world now for lunch, where would that be? <laughs> oh, this is coming. I'd go home because my little dogs are home. And lunch with them. What's your favourite movie? The Lion King. Favourite singer? I don't have one. What culture fascinates you? English Channel. Swimming culture. <laughs> What advice would you give to young athletes or even young business people who wanted to excel or be the best in their fields? Find some great mentors and keep in mind that no one person can give you all the advice you need. So get mentors from different areas and and know that their roles may be obsolete as you go along in your path. So always be very thankful and show gratitude to the people that are supporting you, mentors and others. What's with the umlauts in your name? Oh, they're diureses. Apparently, my name is ancient Greek origins and 
I was named after my eldest sister's friend who had them, so they, they just came with the package. They're really hard to find on the keyboard. They're very hard. <laughs> <laughs> Chloe, thank you very much for uh, sharing your inspirational story. It's incredible. I'm sure there's many more channel crossings to come. Thank you for being on Discipline. You're welcome. It was fun. Mm-hmm.